Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 734 for June 20th, 2023. We're here in the midst of a three races in a row European stint. We just got done with Saxon Ring, and to help me talk about everything that's gone on at Saxon Ring, and specifically most of it that happened off the track in Saxon Ring, is Richard Jowell. Richard, how are you doing this evening in the UK? Yeah, really good. Thanks, Jim. Looking forward to talking about what was, a what should we say, an action-packed and rather eventful in some significant ways weekend. So yeah, looking forward to getting into this one. Yep. So guys, if you can help us out and donate to the show or better, get a subscription to the show, we would greatly appreciate it. If you head to our website, www.motopodcast.com, there are links to go to Patreon and PayPal where you can sign up. Be greatly appreciated. Everything helps us do the little things that you like. And if you can't, we understand. We know that uh, you know times are hard. And not everybody's got some spare pocket change floating around. But if you could go to where you get the podcast from, your favorite podcast player, give us a review. And that would be great because then it will change the algorithm and we will be able to go to the top again. And remember, we want to thank everybody who's our friends at PayPal and Patreon. Um, we'll catch you up with you guys in another episode or two. It's because we're busy with these three on the trot here. So. Uh, we had a lot of great listener feedback that has come in this week. I want to thank Lee for what he's donated to the show uh, via feedback. Um, Gary Shavit, want to thank you as well, Gary. Don Barnes, want to thank you for your email. And Jeremy Burnish, we really want to thank you for yours too. Uh, we're going to take these feedbacks and we're going to kind of shelve them till after the Assen round. Rich and I will get back together. We will have a listener feedback show. These are really great things that we'd like to talk about. And we just can't seem to squeeze this into this show uh, basically because we're three on the trot, but we will get these in uh, after the acid round. So stay tuned for all that. So we appreciate the feedback. We love it. Keep it coming. Remember, feedback goes to motopod at motopodcast.com. With that, Rich, I think we'll go straight into the racing because the news is all about the racing and the weekend in general. And we'll think all the high points I think we'll cover as we go through it. So we'll start it off with the Moto3 qualifying very quickly. Uh, Moto3 QP1, there was a red flag for a crash by Scott Ogden. The boy high-sided himself to the moon. That necessitated a red flag because he was definitely on the track and uh, needed to have help to be recovered from the racing line. Smart read by the officials. We red flagged it from there. From there, it was basically Munoz, Artiga, uh, sorry, Munoz, Artiga, Forosato, and uh, Colin Ferroli, or not Colin Ferroli, but Ferroli, all go through to get to that second session. The second session, only thing I can say is, wow, Sasaki. Sasaki was one second quicker than everybody else on the grid total domination to take pole shocking result i thought i had cannot remember rich where anybody has put in a lap like that in moto three qualifying i'm searching i did some searching the only thing i can come close to is i think marquez had a pole back on the 125s that was seven or eight tenths maybe better but sasaki a whole second we do tend to see one or two of the guys Let's say guys, because I you know don't have any girls that have done this so far in Moto Three. But what was so interesting to me about it was that Sasaki, okay, he was I think he was on his very, very fast lapping qualifying, was towing his teammate Colin Via around, but they were pretty much just out there on their own, whilst everybody else was hanging around the pits as Moto Three tends to do, just getting in each other's way. And yet Sasaki's out on the track, as you say, Jim, going something like 0.8 of a second quicker than everybody else. I mean, it was just madness, wasn't it? And you do was. occasionally get one of these guys that just seems to be good at just going out on their own, just turning fast laps, not worrying about towing anybody. It's probably a little bit track specific because there's obviously not a big slipstream effect at Saxon Ring. But yeah, hugely impressive from Sasaki. 
Yeah. Sasaki actually was in the garage at the end of the end of qualifying. He had no reason to go out. I was like, guys, try me, try, catch me if you can. I don't think you can. I mean, it was just, it was a, I don't know if I want to use this analogy, but almost stoner-esque in the, hey, there's the lap, boys. When you better it, I'm going to go back out and better it again, kind of a thing. Go beat it, yeah. Yeah, mm. go beat it, boys, if you can. So that was pretty amazing. So uh, Sasaki was on pole. Anchu was second, uh, riding that wave of from Mugello a little bit, I think. Then uh, Ortola, Vier, uh, Munoz, and Masia make that first two rows uh, of no Helgardo was on was seventh and Morera was ninth. So those guys we think would be a little closer to the front, not having the best of qualifiers, but we would see what happens in the moto three race on Sunday. As the green flag flew, Sasaki got beat on to the first turn, but man, on just rode around the outside, hanging on to everything. The the guy who really had a crazy start was Colin Vieira, Sasaki's teammate. He was like from way back in row four or something. And he just... Fourth. He was fourth. Not row four. He was fourth. My apologies. He wound up blowing by everybody. And, you know, credit to Anchi. He was riding around the outside of everyone to keep up with it. But it settled into Sasaki with Anchi, Ortola, Orgardo, Vieira would slide down a little bit as they went through. And then, of course, we had Munoz, who always makes a great start, having to take the long lap of inconvenience. Now, they moved the long lap to the last turn on that racetrack, and I have no idea why, Rich, because that, to me, was the most dangerous thing you could have possibly done. It's a sketchy re-entry to the track, isn't it? It's, it's very right curb, not a good place for that no. at all. No, I totally agree. I, did they have a long lap last year somewhere else then? Because I was trying to think where it might have been previously or did they miss saxon ring no no they had saxon no. ring last year but they missed it the year before because of covid i think yeah that was a not raced in during covid thank you I'll i don't you remember the long lap being there i mean possibly could be wrong on that but certainly as you say when munoz re-entered the track it was sketchy, sketchy as we've said because somebody else was coming out and it's a kind of wide sweeping line out of the final turn then so they tend to go up onto the curb so it's a recipe for a collision really and we didn't see one over the weekend thankfully but not a great way to do it munoz was definitely had his eyes he was looking 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 which is great i mean he's he's con cognizant uh, cognizant is that right Rich? yeah, yeah. you're yeah. the good word uh thank you he was cognizant of it and he was being sure that he got back into traffic safely however that dis- to me distracts from your objective of trying to get through the long lap penalty as quickly as possible mm. i don't think it's a good position for it in that track i'm not sure where you would do it but i was thinking that the long lap was somewhere around turn two like it was around the outside of the omega corner or something maybe that kind of rings a bell to me but i'm not 100 certain that that was there in that um, first half of the lap given how many sort of slow not 180 turns but there's quite a lot of long radius corners in that first half of the lap you would have thought that there was a better place for them to situate yeah. that long lap although you might be sort of circumventing a, a much deeper gravel trap area i suppose so that i suppose could potentially create some other issues i mean we saw this rosaco and marquez didn't we which we'll get yeah. to a little bit later mm-hmm. on so it's it's just Trouble with the Saxon ring, it's kind of like a go-kart track, which it makes sure. it perfect for M- Moto3. It's not really such a great track, I think, for MotoGP bikes. But, it's yeah, it's a tricky one, that. But it's a, a great venue. I went there a few years ago. I probably mentioned this before, and it's a one hell of a track to visit as a spectator. Sure. Yeah, really great. Yeah, I would love to ride a Moto3 bike around there because fifth gear wide down the waterfall is like my kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of roller coaster I'd like to ride. Oh, uh, I digress. So, basically, <laughs> Colombier actually crashes out on the like i think the second lap maybe at turn 12 
So his great start shuffled back. I don't know if he lost his composure, maybe a slightly little bit, but he did crash unhurt. So he was out. He's showing some pace. So hopefully he becomes sort of a regular at the front here because he's kind of come on with that. Hopefully I'm getting the pronunciation of this right because he's Dutch. So I'm pretty right. sure it's Via, Via? Is, okay. is the way you pronounce that. And of course, he's heading into Assen this weekend. So home round coming up. So although he will have been very disappointed to have crashed out, great weekend for the young Honestly. lad. Because I, I think it's, is this his first season in Moto3? I don't recall I him so, being yes. in the championship last year. So it's, you know, a lot of good early form from him and heading into his home round this coming weekend. So it'd be interesting to see what he can do. Like I said, Munoz had a long lap penalty. He took the long lap penalty. We discussed that, how he got back on. With 19 laps to go, Sasaki was starting to slip away. Helgardo, from his seventh position on the grid, had made his way to second and was holding up Anchu and Artola. And then there was a gap of about two and a half seconds back to Masia and Alonso. Now, Hargardo was wide, and Anchu instantly jumped on that little single solitary mistake. I think he was wide in the Omega or around the Omega. One of the numerous number of left-handers that are strung together at the Saxon ring. And instantaneously, Anchu was like a good two to three tenths faster or had pulled two to three tenths on, on Helgardo right away. Well, the question then become Sasaki had over a one second lead, which is almost unheard of in Moto3 terms. And given the fact that Sasaki's third sector over the waterfall was so good all weekend, you just felt that Sasaki was going to just control this race. He had it. He just had to bring it home. And Anshu, I really think it was cool because he put his head down and he just started putting in the laps. I don't want to say he thought about it methodically, but he just said, okay, I'm going to chip away. I'm going to chip away. I'm going to chip away. And for a while, their lap times were identical. It wasn't until there was 13 laps to go. So it took Anshu roughly four or five laps to get to where he could run a lap time equivalent to what Sasaki was running and then start chipping away at it. So it was one of those things like, ooh, you start doing the math. Is he got enough laps to to get there? And if, even if Anchu gets there, is he going to be able to get by was sort of the question that I had. Meanwhile, so uh, 10 to go, Sasaki, Anchu, big gap to Helgardo. When Ortola, who are having a great little ding-dong battle there, Ortola's poking, he's trying, he's probing, but he can't seem to figure out a way past Helgardo. No way through. There's, <laughs> yeah, there's no way through. And Alonzo and Yamanaka make out that top six. Now, with nine to go, Anchu was starting to like dangle the left leg off. He was using his hand and sort of gesticulating a little bit with it. Matt Burt and uh, who's the other guy, Rich? I forget. They were talking about it. Lewis Sutterby, I Louis, think his name Lewis Sutterby, yes, thank you. The, the Brit, yeah, he's another Brit, right? Mm. Uh, yeah, you guys knew who we're talking about. That's what matters. And they were speculating that, like, Anchu was trying to talk about something or was trying to signal something. I kind of thought Anchu was sort of, like, doing the jockey thing that, like, he whips the horse down the final stretch. You know, come on, girl, come on, come on, we gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta go. It turns out that Anchu has been having trouble with his leg. He was having leg cramps and leg pain. From his left hip and his left calf. So Anchi was doing sort of 110 mile an hour massage therapy on himself to try to exercise his leg and not have a cramp. Because he is squeezed into a Moto3 bike. I, there's no other way to say it other than he's a big lad. And he, a Moto3 bike is not really where he really should be on. But yeah. Despite all this, he's still starting to take time out of Sasaki. They're closing in, and with seven to go, Anchu was there. Anchu had gotten to the back wheel of Sasaki. Well, where is he going to make the move? You're thinking, 
12, 13, maybe into one. And Anchu was probing. He was prodding. He was looking at it. At this point, Helgarda was doing an absolutely masterful job of defending and holding off Ortola. Again, Ortola did not give up in this, but he still could not find a way past Helgarda. So we sort of have these two separate races going on. The two guys at the front and then the guys that are running 3-4. Anchu sort of kept his powder dry. He probed a few areas, kind of looked at where the weaknesses of where Sasaki was. And then he, on the last lap, he was just up on Sasaki's back end. In fact, Anchu is so close, his front wheel touches Sasaki's rear wheel as they head down the waterfall. You didn't notice it till they showed the replays of it later. I didn't have that heart and mouth moment that you would have, but I did when I saw the replay. I'm like, whoa, that could have been really super bad. Regardless, Anchu sold Sasaki the fake and squeezed by in the last turn to then lead across the line. The only lap he led the only 100 feet that he led to win his very first Moto3 race behind was Sasaki. Very dejected, I would say, having led all that way. He would be second. Helgardo would hold off Ortola. And then it was Alonzo and Masia running out that top six. A fantastic race by Anchu to get to that position and then to keep cool and through the pain of the leg cramp to win. The kid was over the moon in the pits uh, when he brought the bike back in. Well-deserved victory. I think everybody can say we're happy to see Anchu finally sort of take the monkey off his back. What do you Brits say? Break your duck? Yeah. That it Rick? Break your That's duck. It. Break your duck. Yeah. Break your duck. He broke his duck. And quite honestly, Akiayo has done wonders for Dennis Anchu, in my opinion. He has really settled that kid down and made him focus on what his strengths are and use his size to the advantage when necessary. And it's starting to show. Anchu looks really good right now. He's hot. Don't know what's going to happen in a fast-flowing track of Assen, but I'm pretty sure he's probably going to be at the front. I've got to tell you, Jim, I was absolutely punching the air when he won the race because how often have we said, oh, Anchu was second? Yeah. You know, and he is, I know we sound like a broken record on <laughs> numerous things, and certainly one of them is the fact that Dennis Onchu is quite clearly physically too big. And as you, I think, correctly pointed out, that might well be a contributor to this leg cramp problem that he's been suffering with and was obviously severe on Sunday's race because he was making such a play to get down and reach his calf, which is, you say, at that sort of speed and under that much pressure. I mean, a few years ago, that Dennis Onchu, say three or four years ago, would have thrown it up the road in frustration. What I like about Dennis Onchu is, you know, he, he was a bit of a snot-nosed brat, to be perfectly honest, when he was a younger. Bit cocky. But then, yeah, he was like 14 or 15 or whatever he was. So, I mean, you expect it. What I like to see, you know, he's matured a great deal. And in fairness, I think, you know, we saw that in his latter time at the Tech 3 team as well. Obviously, he's gone up to the IO team, as you say, Jim. And Aki IO just works magic with most riders that he comes into contact with, doesn't he? And so, Onchu, you just sort of felt he had to get that first win under his belt. Even if it's just this one, at least he's won a race in Moto3. And I have absolutely no doubt that he'll be in Moto2 next year on a very, very good bike. So... Yeah, I was just delighted. And I mean, you would not have seen a more mature race from just about anybody, I don't think, compared to that race. Because you say he was a little bit further back at the beginning. He had to work his way through. Then he had to bridge that second or so up to Sasaki. By this time, managed the problem with his leg. Unbelievable. And then that pass that you put on Sasaki in, what was it, turn 13? I think the final yeah, turn. It was top Saxon ring was absolutely, I mean, executed to absolute perfection. So I did feel sorry for Sasaki because he was mm -hmm. super quick all weekend. But he's settling down. 
racking up the podiums as well now. So it's all to play for. I mean, Holgado's still got quite a big lead, but, you know, these other guys are going to start hopefully catching up. Whether Onshu can win again, I don't know, because as you said, Saxon Ring kind of masked the problem of him in terms of being able to tuck in when there's slipstream involved. And there isn't, that isn't really a factor at the Saxon Ring, but... Valencia may be a win. They can never take it away from him now, can they? No. So, you know, fair play to the lad. He, he really deserved it. Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the fun things of watching Moto3 is watching riders mature. Yeah. You you, yeah. you get a chance to watch these kids grow up, and it's really, it's fun to watch. So, yeah. congratulations to Anju. Yeah, that's absolutely. Well, as you said, you mentioned, you spoiler alert, Holgardo has got a stranglehold on things right now. He is a hundred on 125 points. Masia is second. He is on 84. That is a 41 point difference. And wowzer, wowzer, wowzer. That is pretty impressive to be this. We are only five races into the world championship so far, right? To be honest with Jim, I was actually quite surprised when I realized that Masia was in second in the championship because we haven't yeah, really seen a great... I mean, no. he's obviously been racking up the finishes, but not really much sort of podium activity. As I'm not sure if I'm trying to remember if he's won a race this year so far. No, not yet. I think he no. has. You know, he's second in the standings, but yeah, quite a long way back. So there's yeah. a lot of work to do. Ortola has lost a little bit of ground. He's now three points behind Masia for second. Then there's Sasaki, who's made a gain. He's only two points uh, back of Ortola, which puts him five back of Masia, which is good. Anchu takes a big jump up to go forward there as well to be fifth. Then you've got Marrera, Alonso, Artigas, Rueda, and uh, Nepa as your top 10 in the point. With that, I think we've done all we can do for Moto3 yep. in this race, and we'll move ourselves to Moto2. Moto2 qualifying, that first run, it was uh, Barry Baltus, Canet, Chantra, Garcia. They get through the first qualifying session. I have to give a big, huge shout out to Sean Dylan Kelly because he got to Q2 for the first time and he didn't have to go through Q1 to do it. He was quick enough to be in that top, uh, what is it, 15? I, I forget what it is that they have. It's 15 not or 16, group. I think. 15 yeah. or 16. He was in the fast group and he went directly to Q2. Props to Sean Dylan Kelly. Congratulations, my man. I hope you can build on this. I'd love to see you there week in and week out. Looking forward to seeing what you can do when you get to Assen as well. However, when we did, got down to the nitty gritty of Q2, it was uh, about halfway through when Acosta was 10th and Arbolino was on pole. Like, oof. I'm like, ooh, this is really going to shake this up in this championship run. I mean, Arbolino's got a chance here to maybe capitalize on another Acosta error. I'll use air quotes around that error there. But Solash would then do uh, fall off at turn one. But then Acosta gets towed by Lowe's to pole. So I'm like, whoa, Acosta's learned the Mark Marquez. You find the guy who's got to throw down a lap and you tag on the back and you go to the front with him. Okay, well, hey, it, it, there's no law against it. There's no rules against any of this. Fair play. The kid's obviously looking at every strategic advantage that there exists. What I didn't recognize at the time was when they were putting a new tire on Acosta's bike, Akiaya went over and talked to the kid. I don't know what he said to the kid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no one knows what he said to him, right? But when it came down to it, Acosta on his own without a single person around him in empty track, sort of that mad skill that sort of Marquez has where you find yourself in it when Marquez could qualify well, right? On a good bike. You were in that little empty zone by yourself and not being bothered by anybody or anything and Acosta bettered his full time. So he wasn't fast because he got towed by Lowe's. He was fast just because he figured something out or Aki told him something. And I think Simon Crayford asked him, asked Aki, what did you say? And he says, uh, we just talked about what he needed to do. So there's a, some common, again, it's like 
we ought to start calling Akiyo Tinkerbell because he's got pixie dust that he can just sprinkle on kids and they just suddenly this magic happens and these guys are doing great, right? Honestly, Jim, I just think Acosta's got so much confidence right now as well that it it could be. It could be. He, he sort of banked a reasonable time and just went out and smashed it after that. Possibly Io just said, You can you know, you've got this, go out and just do your best. Oh, yeah. Got the boy's confident. There's no question about that. He's got things figured out. He would romp the pole. Arbelina would be second. Dixon with a last lap, last second dive. Not dive. Last second run, right? Mm -hmm. Time had run out. Dixon had got around just enough. He had one lap to do it. Jumped up to third place. Kanet was in fourth. Lopez, Lowe's uh, would take the first two rows. So it was looking like we were going to wind up with a straight up fight between Arbolino and Acosta. Oh, Mouthwatering shades of coda come to mind <laughs> of what was going to happen here. So we then get into the race and basically at the start, Arbolino grabbed a whole shot. Alonzo made a really great shot. <laughs> then it was Dixon. Acosta had kind of went backwards. He got sort of shuffled to the outside around the first couple of turns. But then in the first turn, Bender and uh, Bo Ben Schneider went down at turn one and rumbled into the gravel trap. It looked, I didn't look, it was like a clot. You know, poor Bender just got clawed at. Bo Ben Schneider lost the front, just took him out. Well, no, it was uh, Jeremy Alcoba, of course. Oh, accident. that's right. Alcoba was he a part of that. Just right. went, I mean, he yeah. did a Furman Aldegard from Mugello and just went Or a Marquez from Porto Mayo. Lost it, took out two riders. And, and okay, Alcoba did get a long lap penalty for that. Yeah, that's and right, he did. I suppose in the current climate, deservedly so but it still irks me that Aldega didn't get a long lap penalty for doing exactly the same thing in Mugello but anyway moving on I mean that's past history but Darren Binder can't can't buy, buy a win can't minute. buy anything yeah, nothing no luck nothing None. going for him at all yeah so basically Acosta would then fly by at turn 12 and Acosta would would lead and him and Arbolino would gap the pack Canet, Lopez, Dixon, Garcia they would all try to give it their best shot Canet would fall down at turn 13 I hate to say this but if Canet wants a better ride, it has nothing to do with the tattoos or his personality. It's the fact you fall off a lot. I'm sorry. I yeah. don't really, I'm not trying to be mean or harsh because if anybody is not taking him because he has tattoos, that's crap. And it shouldn't happen in the paddock at all. But his results are not what they should be. If he wants to be on the IO squad or he wants to be on a gas gas, they're just not there. And you need results. He's that frustrating conundrum of a guy that is so fast, but just crashes far too much. And he was the same in Moto3 as well, if we remember back. Now, that's not to say that he can't turn a corner like a lot of these guys do and suddenly work that part of their game out. I mean, case for the defence, Jorge Martin, for example, in terms of this year. Uh, and he's been a terrible for crashing out of good positions. And Kanet hasn't worked that bit out of his system yet. But I mean, he's well, I'm trying to think how long he's been in Moto2 now. It must be his third or fourth season. So he can't afford to keep on with this. Otherwise, mm. World Supersport beckons probably. So I just want to say, just in terms of the start, Jim. Yes. For the first time in a long time, Jake Dixon made a good start. That's true. Yeah. Which is Dixon the one thing that's been start. the you know the one part of his game that you know I'm sure he would freely admit has been the sort of the one weak area is getting off the line. Now he's quite a tall, probably one of the heavier riders in Moto Two, so that is clearly going to be a handicap. But although he dropped back a couple of places over the first couple of laps, he was right at the front as opposed to dropping back to sort of tenth sort of 15th zone, which is what he has tended to do a bit too much in his Moto2 career. And it showed in the end result. Anyway, 
that was all I just wanted to pick up on. No, I, I agree. You're perfectly well within your British rights to be on <laughs> about Dixon because it was yeah. fantastic to see him at the front, the sharp end of the grid. Yep. However, he had two of the fastest Moto2 riders on the planet ahead of him, unfortunately. Now, Acosta and Arbolino are gone. It is going to be settled between those two. Uh, the fight is for those third places and back, and it's Dixon who does have an advantage over Chantra, Lopez, and, and Vietti. In fact, to be honest with you, Guevara goes down at turn 13, and Dixon wound up starting to catch Arbolino late in the race. He was nipping away. Dixon was pulling away for that 3-4-5 battle and was heading towards the front because Acosta had put about a second, second and a half on Arbolino in what was truly a masterful ride of control at that point. So as it came down, Acosta's gone. He wins the race. He winds up slowing down and wins it only by a second. But it was a very controlled, dominant race by, what is he, 18 years old? Uh, I think he's only 18. Maybe maybe mm. we'll turn 19 here shortly. Yeah, He's 18 or 19 people. An amazingly mature, controlled ride by that kid. It was absolutely impressive for me to watch him put in essentially perfect lap after perfect lap and control the situation. Arbolino had nothing for Pedro this weekend did not and it was we were I shamefully was hoping Dixon was going to get Arbolino towards the end because Arbolino had fallen off I don't know if it was a tire just couldn't keep it under him or if it was something else maybe that was going on that we're not aware of anything could happen tire spin on a rim balance weight something who knows could have been anything but Dixon tried but he came up short and stayed third so it was Acosta Arbolino Dixon Chantra Lopez and Gonzalez were like your top six out of the race Lowe's would be 70, just missed out on that. And that's pretty much, you know, sad race for Agura. Uh, he's lingering in the back, remnants of the wrist problem that he had. You know, Sean Dylan Kelly would, would be 17th, even though he had that ability to get into the second qualifying session. Uh, so that is, uh, you know, Roberts DNF'd it. I crashed. Crashed in the last turn. Crashed, yeah. crashed in the last turn. So hard day for the American riders. Question for you, Jim. Sure, Rich. Do you fancy Agura is going to have another year in Moto2? Because I know you're a big fan of Agura. Well, I'm so am I. I mean, he's a great rider, but he's been severely handicapped by that wrist injury this yes. year. And I don't imagine Agreed. the prospect of jumping onto a Honda MotoGP bike at the moment is necessarily filling him with a lot of confidence. Yeah, I is 21, 22 years old, somewhere close to that, I think. He can spend another year in Moto2. The question becomes, what happens with Mark Marquez? I think Mir's there to stay, right? I mean, Rins is probably there to stay. I don't know. They could all walk. We know contracts are made to be broken. But I guess in the scheme of things, does Honda want to take their best Japanese prospect and put him on a bike that's horrible? I don't think they want to, but they might have to. Because if Mark walks, says that he's going to go his own way or something, then they might have to. Because I don't know if they could... I'm sure there'd be people who would want to get on the Honda and ride it. Okay, I think that's there are, but it may not be the caliber of rider Honda wants on the bike. So, I mean, it really comes down to what's going to happen there because you still have Mir as a Spaniard on a Repsol motorcycle. Rins, a Spaniard, right, with Repsol sponsorship. They could both be in the factory team. We know Rins' contract is paid by HRC. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean... <laughs> At this point, I can't imagine I moving up. I really can't. I think he'll stay in Moto2 next I year. I think he stays. Yeah. So the, let's talk about, uh, let's flip this a little bit. From what I've read was that because Acosta has now won three races this year, that's triggered a, I get a MotoGP bike. 
clause in his contract, which <laughs> Pitt Buyer has said to Simon Gravar that, you know, we prefer him to stay in Moto2. Well, if there's a get-out-of-jail-free card, how many factories are now running down to Akiyo's garage, beating the door down to try to put Pedro Acosta's pen signature on paper to ride their MotoGP bike? All of them. Every single one of them. If they're crazy, they're not. So what happens here? Second hand, because you would have heard the same thing on the Dawn of Feed, but the deadline date for this is the 30th of June, is what That's I wrote correct. down, mm-hmm. which is, what, uh, a week and a half from now? week and a half. So we're going to find out on this one fairly soon. You know, it's a huge problem, and without stealing thunder from other podcasts that I've listened to today, but, I mean, everybody knows this, you know, KTM faced this with Jorge Martin and had to let him go, and look what's happening. So yes. they ain't going to get bitten twice, so they're going to have to find room. Um, Arbolino is still on top. Acosta's right behind him. He's, Acosta's chipped another five points off of it, so what was 15 now becomes 10-point lead. It's narrowing down. Acosta's on a run of form that I wouldn't bet against him at Assen, nor would I bet against Arbolino, so I'm sure those two are going to be back at the front again. Lopez, Dixon, uh, and Slash there for the uh, championship. There's top five. All right, championship results over with, done. We know what's going on. It's a two-man race at the top. It's Arbolino Acosta. So, Rich, go ahead. Well, just briefly, and again, this is obviously within the realms of speculation, it's true, but an article came out in the race.com yesterday. I'm pretty sure it was written by Simon Patterson, who is obviously in the paddock and talking to everybody and is well established, irrespective of you know people's feelings about him. So he does know what he's talking about. And this story has now gained a bit of traction around the whole third KTM satellite squad with the rumour mill starting to churn that that could well be the Husqvarna branded team that you and I have kind of been going down the wish fulfillment road on Jim. Yep. But interestingly with Acosta, because that's the problem that they have to solve. Correct. Otherwise they risk losing him. I don't think Pitt Buyer is willing to stomach losing another amazing talent. No. And he, he can't. Well, they would be very foolish to allow that to happen. Now, okay, you could say, well, they do have options. I mean, clearly they're not going to bin Miller or Binder out of the works squad because neither of those guys deserve to be binned, even though we might have had some doubts about Jack Miller when, you know, at the beginning of the season, but he's doing fantastically well there. In the Gas Gas squad, well, it would be a tough call to turf Augusto Fernandez out because he's doing a solid job as a rookie. And Paul Espargo, well, we don't know because he hasn't competed in a race really this year um, was it the sprint race i think when he had that huge crash and we've not seen uh, since. practice i thought it was practice it could well have been but yeah it's a very it was very serious injuries so we haven't had. seen paul so it would be pretty tough justice on him if he was kind of turfed out without being able to show his hand sort of thing although i mean if you're being a little bit kind of drastic in your view you might say paul's been in the championship a long time one of the number of riders that this applies to and does tend to crash a lot and does tend to get injured for quite long periods of time. So if anybody was going to go, I would have thought Paul Espargo might be the one to go. But there are two grid places on offer and KTM have never been shy about spending a bit of money and they've got a lot of backing in terms of their sponsorship. So it does make sense. And so this story is doing the rounds. So Acosta on one bike and the story that Simon Patterson was pushing yesterday was that Jake Dixon could be on the other bike. Now that does make sense because he's on a Gas Gas sponsored bike in the Aspar team and Aspar have be previously been expressing interest to taking up a position in MotoGP again so it's kind of connect the dots Jim isn't it I suppose mm. and a lot of this makes a lot of logical sense if the money can be found and 
The only blockage, as I understand it from what I read, and I think we've talked about this before, is that those two slots technically should go to a works team. That is correct. So it would require agreement from the other teams because this is obviously a bit of a grey area because whilst it would be a de facto works KTM bike, it would be branded as a sub-marketing division or whatever you you want to talk about it. So, you know, it's a grey area in the rules, but will the consensus be there to say, let's get another two guys on the grid fill up those slots of Suzuki vacated. So that's the big story that, and that is a big story. And if this one comes off, that is huge, really. So yeah, thoughts. One, Pit Buyer will remove Paul Sparger if it becomes necessary. If it's a push comes to shove, he's going to push Paul Sparger out. I'm sorry. Pit Buyer will do it when it comes to that. Now, I saw another article that said five into four. Now, how does KTM take five and put it into four slots? Well, what was brandied about, and this is not by Simon Patterson, was that they could put a MotoGP bike in Husqvarna colors out of the IO squad. But that would be one bike on the grid, not two. And it would be a satellite, definitely, because IO is not a factory, right? Mm-hmm. That would take some doing. And it's probable that Dorna would simply brush aside anything from Erda or the MSA going, nah, we have two slots and it's a factory bike. It's okay. That solves the problem. And Dorna has that power because the other part of it is that kid has got everybody's attention. Even people are having fans, not, not people, fans. Fans of the sport are looking for that next one that transcends sport, right? Michael Jordan transcended sport. Everybody knows who Michael Jordan is. A lot of people who don't even know anything about racing know who Valentino Rossi is. I'm not saying Acosta is going to transcend sport, but he is probably the most marketable one because he seems to understand the interaction with the fans more than most of the other riders. Now, that doesn't mean you don't get a seven-figure contract to ride a MotoGP bike. You're not going to go crawl off into the corner of your garage and not be seen again. Money changes people. But he seems to understand that they, and when he when Acosta says they, they have to do better at promoting the sport themselves. So, you know, that needs to be done. And he seems to see that, okay? There wasn't any celebration that I know that I saw of him with the Moto2. There wasn't a backpack and shark fins or anything like that. But he did have a celly, right? The kid's got a personality that kind of people kind of cling to he just does it's it's you you have or you don't right marquez is just good because he's the villain has been the villain since the very beginning right he was branded as the villain and he just plays the villain well he smiles and carries on and you know whatever i'm gonna do what i want on the track and da 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 da. acosta has that more playful carefree attitude that sort of rossi had like he's kind of somewhere in between the two i think we touched on this last week didn't we yeah yeah so the other factor just that I forgot to mention that was in this article, which is a, another sort of way in in terms of the funding, is CF Moto, because I believe that sits under, and that's obviously a Chinese brand, but it's part of that group of companies. Yeah, the Pierre, Pierre Motoring Group or whatever that is. Yeah, something thank to you. that effect. I, I was trying to think what it was, but. It's with a P. I think it's Pierre, but. I, yes. So there are various. Like there are various ways that this can work. Uh, and as you say, it might just be that the powers that be just railroad it through for the overall good of the sport and to solve some problems that could do with being solved. So yeah, watch this space, everybody. But uh, the old wish fulfillment thing could well be coming true by the looks of it. And and we'll find out pretty sh- shortly, I would think, because as we said, the co- this clause in the Costa's contract that's been triggered by his winning spree is due to be figured out what just the other side of Assen as we head into the summer 
this yeah. long summer break. So there'll be silly season, you know, we'll go fully into oh, overdrive, I would think, this weekend oh. and over the next couple of weeks. And if not and if nothing is announced, if it's somehow not announced at all, oh the five weeks of speculation that's gonna run rampant about what Acosta is doing is gonna be absolutely ludicrous. Well, your David Emmett's, your Matt Oxley's, oh, your Simon Patterson, they'll all be... They're going to go nuts. I mean, they're tapped in enough to be able to hint at oh, what's yeah. going to happen. So we'll, I'm sure we'll find out pretty much what's going on. But you know, official announcements might wait until... I, I'm trying to think what the first race back is. Is it Silverstone? Yes, August in Silverstone. Yeah. yeah. So mm. watch this space. Yeah. My personal take is I think KTM shows up with two Husqvarna's on the grid. Ocasa's got one of them. The other one, Dixon. Okay. But... The question then is, do they throw Marquez a lifeline? Well, he can't. I, I just don't think he can get out of that contract next year, Jim. I mean, that's the big problem that they've got. And then there's all sorts of know. parts that become available in 2025. We can come on to this in a little bit. Yeah. So let's let's shelve that. Let's get into kind of the scenario surrounding all this. First of all, free practice. What was it? Free practice one. Marquez loses the front going into turn one and absolutely destroys Zarco's Ducati. Zarco's fault, apparently. I don't know about you, but I just wasn't having that. You and I, as we've started I to do over the course of a weekend, we're WhatsApping each other a fair bit. Yeah. I forget we, we precisely do. what I said. And I'm not looking to invite sort of hate because, as I've said before, and I'll stand behind what I've said before, which is that Marquez is, I mean, arguably the best ever. But I'm not quite sure you can really ever say that about any rider. His but generation, yes. Of his generation, hands down. I mean, the guy's just a, a magician or has been a magician on a motorbike. So no two ways about it. But okay, he crashed at turn one, lost the front. As we're going to talk about, that happened quite a lot over the weekend. Now, Zarko was coming out of the pits, admittedly fairly slowly. But, you know, I mean, whether you come out fast or slow is not really the point. I mean, if there's a bike traveling towards you at God knows what speed out of control, it's luck of the draw if it hits you or if it doesn't. So for Marcos to suggest that it was somehow Zarco's fault, I didn't really get that. But when I WhatsApped you, Jim, I think, you know, I was saying that we've seen the best and the worst of Mm. Marquez in like a two minute period there because he had to crash. Fair enough. People crash. He hit Zarco. That was very unfortunate. I don't think it was anybody's fault. It certainly wasn't Zarco's fault. But Mark, you know, just runs straight to the scooter to get back to the pits to get onto his spare bike and doesn't even stop to kind of just even inquire. In fact, he was gesticulating at Zarco as soon as he jumped up out of the gravel that it was kind of his fault and then just left the scene. And I thought that was, I mean, I know they're going to clock and he needs to get back and he, he wants to get another lap in and all the rest of it. But I just thought that was not very sporting, that yeah. behavior. Marquez did go behind the trucks and he did go find Zarco and they had a conversation. Yo, you okay? Yeah. Da, da, da. For me, we were always taught when I was racing that when you enter the racing track, it is you who needs to be paying attention to where you can get into your position. You are responsible for entering that track safely where we exit pit lane. That was drilled in to every one of us. I'm sure it's been drilled into these guys, okay? The thing of it is, is that it is just bad timing. Zarco happened to be in a place where Zarco couldn't get out of the way of what was happening. And especially if, if Zarco had had looked over the hill, glanced, right? Said, okay, I'm going to beat Marquez into the corner past the apex. And then if he's trying to do take pit lane speed limiters off, look at his dash, something that, you know, these things are complicated machines to ride. He's maybe trying to check to see if his ride shape-shifting buttons are in the right order 
or right positions or whatever. If he's distracted for that one to two seconds and he looks back and Marquez's bike is sliding at him, Zarco's got nowhere to go in all of this. I'm going to just tell you that that was purely just racing. It's just the crappy look that exists in racing motorcycles. Yeah, it's bad luck. It's that, that. Yeah, I'm not right? saying it's Marcus's fault, but equally, I don't think Correct. it's Zarco's fault. I mean, it's neither Zarco fault. zoomed out of the pits or out of that pit exit into the apex then he'd be accused of bulking the line for people that are on hot laps. So you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't in that situation. And okay, I'm sure he did look to his right as he came onto that main straight or started to feed into that main straight. But at a certain point, you have to look down to make sure you don't go off the track because it is a 180 degree bend pretty much. So yes. And in that split second, Dan Marquez went and in the blink of an eye, you know, you got a bike traveling at what a hundred miles an hour or 80 miles an hour, whatever it would be going into that turn. And luckily, I mean, Zaka did see it right at the very last moment because he lifted his leg out of the way and good job that he did. Because yes. Otherwise that would have been a horrendous leg injury. injury. Mm-hmm. So yeah, gnarly. That's very gnarly to me. I will give you the, the sporting part of that, right? It was not, very sporting of Marquez. It was like you said, it was very much the best of Marquez and the worst of Marquez in those 30 seconds. I want to add something else to this from a different perspective whatsoever. The entire front end of Zarco's motorcycle was ripped off. Okay, that was a big impact. I am not going to lie about that, but the engineer in me can't help but go, wait a second. Has Ducati built a frame that is very rigid front to rear? Braking stability, traction are all greatly enhanced by having stiffness, but it has no feel, nor would it have the ability to flex around a corner. But if Ducati's built a bike that is that front end can be ripped off that easily, that implies that they have flex built in left to right and front to back as rigid as all get out, which may explain why the shapeshifter works so well on the Ducati. Because you because you're playing with that that geometry, but you're playing with the rigidity of the frame. And if it's that rigid and you've dropped it, you have no suspension movement, which means it's like having literally a drag bike. Which explains how the, the Ducatis, despite KTM's very promising position that they're in, they still do not get off the corners, the slow corners, anywhere near as fast as the Ducati does. The Ducatis put a length, a half a length on them every single time. And I'm wondering if it isn't down to the rigidity of the frame that the, that these guys are riding on. That explosion of parts, make, mm. I'm telling you, that explosion of parts makes the engineer in me go, they ha- they're they playing literally with, th- there was always flex. People were always talking about, this. they were doing this back in the 80s and everything. But the problem was then the modeling techniques that you could use with the computer-aided designs weren't that good. They were okay. They weren't great. Now you have some really sophisticated modeling softwares that Gigi Delinia may have taken advantage of with his team. And that may be one of the things that's really helping them out where everybody else is, well, I need a rigid frame because I've got a break with it and whatnot, blah, 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 blah. Because the Ducati never really, and now it might actually have this in an article years ago, how they were wanting to make the bikes flex in the middle. I think they figured it out yeah. from that crash. I think they figured it out because wow, that came apart way too easy. Good grief for rambling rich. I'm sorry. We got <laughs> yeah. to get on. Them. We're down a rabbit hole already. Oh, so MotoGP qualifying that first G- first session, both uh, Bender and Marquez were in that first session. Which goes to show how bad things are at Honda. He was there. But they both got through, but it was a drying track. 
Marquez was out on reins initially. Then he winds up going down at the last corner. And Marquez doesn't even look at the book, just gets up, runs back in, grabs another motorcycle. I think he crashed the Kalex frame and got on the HRC frame. I can't remember which way Simon Crafar said that, but apparently Mark's bikes are not identical. It's not two Kalexes. It's not two HRC frames. It's one of each that's there. Well, that bike had wets. So Mark sort of says, oh, no, wait a minute. We're going to wait here a little bit. Bender had gambled earlier on for slicks at sort of the advice of Jack Miller <laughs> that you should be on slicks now. And then uh, Bender went to the top. Uh, Vinales was quick, but went was doing it on wets. Then Mark wound up making an assault on slicks to get to second. So Bender and Marquez will go into the Q2 session. In Q2, Marquez is down again at turn 13, basically wadded that bike up again. That was the fifth crash of the weekend for Marquez. That boy was dejected. I think it was fifth one. Fourth or fifth. And they were, at that point, they were pinching wings and stuff off Mir's bike that was sat in the pits. Well, they weren't ready for him to get the bike back. No, and they were just having to scavenge parts off off other bikes, you yep. know, because it was so much crash damage that weekend. Quick, <laughs> it was just... quick thinking. Wow. Hey, the, the spare part's right there. Get it. Put it on. Quick thinking by the mechanics to do that. Yeah. I mean, applause to the HRC and the mechanics. Those guys are working their ass off. And unfortunately, they have a guy who's riding his ass off. And <laughs> unfortunately, after the morning, let's, we'll talk about that in a minute. We'll talk, table that yeah, for a second. Yeah, we'll, it's, a whole other conver- it's a whole other conversation <laughs> to have. Uh, the second session, it was still drying, right? So we're still working with this drying track. It was going to come down to last man standing. Whoever was going to get by with one second on the clock and produce the lap was going to be the guy who was going to be on pole. Uh, Bezeki uh, was down at turn 13. Marquez got it back to the pits. The mechanics were caught cold by all this. They stripped parts, as you said, off of Mir's bike. Impressive work by the HRC squad to get another get another run. Martin was on top. Then it was Ben Yaya. Zarco went to pole. Miller was there in first. But again, the times are just dropping as we go by. It's a it's a roulette wheel. But Ben Yaya would wind up getting the pole. Luca Marini would be second. Miller would stay on the front row in third. Zarco fourth. Bezeki fifth. Jorge Martin sixth. So the middle of that second, or barely on the second row. And Marquez would wind up seventh, having had those problems with the crashes, et cetera. So that was qualifying for MotoGP. Uh, we'll move to the sprint. Yep. After that. Benyaya, Miller, and Martini, and Martin, you know, go with those M's there. We're out front at the beginning of it. Completely dry. Benyaya went wide in turn one, and it became a three-wide fight with Miller as they were all running it through there. First lap, and Marquez already had a track on this morning. He'd been off the track three times with the bike. Uh, crazy at that point. Uh, Martin led over the waterfall. It was Martin, it was Miller, Benyaya, Marini, uh, and then uh, Bender. Bender having a great start and working his way through the pack on a track that you really couldn't, can't really pass on. Everyone was just gapping the front. You know, Martin was gapping Benyaya, was gapping Miller, was gapping Marini. There was a gap to Bender, gap to Zarco. It was running crazy at that point. Then uh, Vinales was down at turn one with his bike. And it kind of, this race kind of lacked any pizzazz. It became a follow the leader processional type of thing. Zarco did put a wicked pass on the waterfall with Bender. He nerfed Bender off at the waterfall. Now Bender stayed on track barely and he did continue on. I was thinking there's, and this was on the last lap, by the way. And I thought for sure Zarco should have been demoted one place. I thought that was deserving of a penalty. You are playing a game that is not the place to play that game, in my opinion. 
That was a little bit too much. I'm all for tight racing. I'm all for racing as rubbing. I thought Zarco was over the line and should have been demoted one place. Did you see it differently, Rich? Well, I thought it was right on the edge of what you could reasonably get away with without sanction. And a race direction looked at it and decided it didn't deserve a penalty, which I thought on balance was the right decision. It was a hard move and it could have oh, yeah. gone quite badly wrong. But at the end of the day, we've had this discussion endlessly. You need people to take opportunities when they present themselves and so that's what Zarko did and Zarko to be fair to him is a pretty decent overtaker most of the time it was right on the edge there's no two ways about it and I thought oh dear that is going to get a penalty so I was pleasantly surprised if not a bit shocked when that isn't what happened so whether they were kind of balancing it against you know the move that had happened earlier in the race the other way around between Binder and Zarko I don't know because I don't think race direction ever really give much in the way of an explanation as to their decisions no but I wrote in my notes good decision so that was how I felt about it at the time and I don't think I've yeah. changed my mind but it's yeah it's right on the edge Jim so I yeah. can totally understand why you think the other way that, I mean, that, that's fair it's all valid points rich my take on it is i've seen worse from people and i've seen less worse incidents from people and race control go oh you gotta drop a place yeah oh absolutely but, uh to me it, it was more a consistency issue with stewarding than actually the riding between zarco and Bishop. well think about that little tap was it miller on banya in argentina this year yep uh you know and he had to drop a place so right banya had to drop a place so uh, yeah Correct. i mean oh that was terrific uh, well and argentina I th- i'm pretty sure it happened in argentina it happens in just about every bloody race doesn't it something yeah. happens and you get a decision that doesn't quite stack up against the decision that's been made in a different race so this is kind of the problem which we won't go back into now yeah i mean maybe there are a few little signs of change coming in race direction with regards to some of the decisions because there wasn't too much this weekend that stuck out in my mind in terms of decisions you thought of you know what's sake why sort of thing you know so and that's the first time we've been able to say that for a while that's true some people might say like you just have that zarko should have had a penalty for that personally i thought not so but that was the only one that springs to mind other than the fact that uh, you know our covert white people out on the first turn in, in the moto 2 race and did get a penalty when the same thing happened in the previous race and that person didn't so it is still a bit inconsistent but at least there are signs of slight improvement yes i will give you there was improvement my basic complaint was if you're going to call them, call consistently. You didn't call this one consistently. We've seen things that are less obtrusive be drop a place than Yais, to be precise. And I was just, all right, I was KTM blinded because Bender got shoved off, right? <laughs> At this point, accepting that there's a degree of kind of health and safety interference that exists in just about every facet of life, well, certainly in the Western world, I would settle at this point for, and taking the Zarco Binder case that we're talking about if there's an overtake and there's a bit of contact but nobody goes down i think that's okay if there's an overtake with contact and it puts the other person down then okay in the old days it would have just been a racing incident and it would have been nothing would have happened so now that would be a penalty and i think we can all accept that that's probably not unfair right i agree but i think the minute you sort of say well if you have a bit of contact and you get through you've got to drop the place well then i just think you're disincentivizing people from racing full stop so wholeheartedly agree i, I don't think that's the right the ways that the sport should be governed Yep. All right, let's set the sprint race aside. And Oh, well, actually, let's run down where people were in the sprint race. We didn't do that. Uh, Martin would win. Benyaya, Miller, Marini, Zarco. Bender would be your top six. Uh, interestingly, Mark Marquez finishes 11th. And basically, if you, to me, when I watched that race, I looked at it like, geez, he's not even trying anymore. Like, I just want to finish something. I wrote in my notes, Jim, 
I wrote Mark Marquez going backwards. The Honda just won't hold its line. So every time you did see him, he was just going wide everywhere. I mean, but it was the front that's just pushing everywhere. And I think he was backing off because he didn't want to crash because he'd already been down, what, two or three times on Saturday at this point as it was. So at least he finished the session, which is more than he'd managed in every other session up to that point of the weekend. But 11 at Saxon Ring. Mark Marquez, I mean, oh, yeah, shocker. So we get into Sunday morning warm up. I don't remember what turn it was, but Marquez has basically throws it away again. Was it the last turn, thirteen? No, it was the the fast left hander at the bottom of the hill, uh, not the waterfall hill. It's that long sort of set of downhill lefts. Oh, before they start heading uphill towards the waterfall again, and it's okay, okay, before the waterfall. So, quick. Yeah, it's quick, yeah, definitely. And he threw it away. Marquez was sitting in the gravel trap for quite some time. He was looking like that. What happened, or what do I do now? And he finally removed himself from the gravel trap. Had climbed over the armco or gotten around the armco or whatever. And there's a picture, very now a prophetic picture of Marquez with forearms on the armco leaning over it head down and in that moment you got to believe that he just realized that i don't know what to do i cannot keep doing this because the bike is not capable of doing it it's bittersweet to see an eight times world champion dejected in that way love him or hate him from a human being standpoint that guy realize that he can't do this anymore not that he and not and it's not him it's not a physical limitation of his shoulder or his arm or his dilopia it's none of that it is the bike the bike cannot do what he needs it to do and he can't adapt to what the bike needs to do no matter it seems like no matter what they try it does not get any better we are now at a point where we're watching the breakup of a very successful group of people. I can't figure out how HRC can build him a bike next year that's going to be a world beater. It might be a vast improvement over what it is, but it is not going to be a world beating motorcycle, which leads us to what the hell is Marquez going to do? Yeah. I mean, if it's true and he gets 25 million euro for a season, I can't see him buying his way out of his contract can he persuade red bull to pay 25 million euros to get him out of his contract to be on that third ktm team with pedro acosta i don't know i don't you know is marquez damaged goods is the question is there an aura of prima donna about him that you wouldn't want on your motorcycle oh blimey jim there's so much to pick out of this and unpack isn't there i kind of stumble over this a little bit i mean the first point to make is i think the problem that hrc have got and all of the riders have this problem is that that bike just crashes so unexpectedly. The front just goes. I mean, you can sort of see the way these crashes are happening. I mean, we didn't really get to see in a lot of detail Rinz's crash at Mugello, although it was just about caught on camera. But he's going through, um, oh, what's the name of the, I can't think of the name of the turn now, but, a, you know, a quick right-hand turn at the bottom of the hill in Mugello. And the front just goes, you know, and you don't see people crash there hardly ever at all. So you've got Mir that can't get through a session without landing on his head. Nakagami admitted over the course of the weekend that he's just not pushing on the bike anymore because he's just scared to crash. And he did have a big crash on Friday, I think it was, and damaged his hand again. And Marquez just doing what Marquez does, which is chucking the kitchen sink at the problem and just... I mean, having huge, huge crashes. I mean, even, and again, not great for a podcast. I'm doing the old inverted <laughs> speech marks thing. But, you know, the, that crash he had in the final turn in Saturday qualifying, I mean, he still came down on his head really hard. And this is a guy that could 
suffer this diplopia recurrence at any moment from a bang to the head. So that's got to be in the back of his mind. And I mean, the Sunday morning crash, for anybody that did see it, and although it wasn't caught particularly brilliantly on the sort of the main coverage that Dorna was showing, there was subsequently a, I don't know if you call it like a CCTV view, a different camera that wasn't part of the worldwide broadcast that kind of showed the crash. And I mean, again, you know, he just comes into that turn and the front just goes without any warning whatsoever. And I mean, he barrel rolled and barrel rolled through the thing and he was visibly hazy. So as you said, Jim, he was sat on a chair on the side of the track for a good three or four minutes. And then it kind of cut back to the action for a couple of minutes and it went back to him, by which time, as you mentioned, he kind of climbed over the bar and he's just leaning over the, I mean, I watched it, sort of live footage and you know as you say he's just leaning over this armco shaking his head you know and we've never seen this before with mark marquez this kind of broken spirit we figured out he's human well yeah and you, can, you know you, mark marquez is a human being i mean even for the most kind of virulent kind of vr46 fans out there i, I defy most people to have not felt a little bit of sympathy for mark marquez at that moment because he'd just done everything he could and the thing just isn't talking to him and it's kind of really a danger of having a life-altering injury again at this point or a reoccurrence of the eye injury which you know could be permanent if it happens again i mean these things are not guaranteed to go away so now we should preface this that the news came out earlier today i don't know if you saw this jim i'll put it on the notes but he has confirmed he'll be riding at aston this weekend it was, not- that, that, we didn't mention that he, he decided he was cleared fit to race he does have a small fracture in a finger yeah but marquez did not race he withdrew and did not race that has to tell you a lot yeah. And he's, he'll be back at Aston or whatever. So there's a couple of things. Jim, I mean, that, Aston yeah. is, is a quick track. Oh. And I mean, and a, a bike with a vague front end, it doesn't really bear thinking about, unless he does what Nakagami's doing and just Puts decides around. to roll it back to sort of nine, eight to nine tenths. But that's not the Mar- Marquez way. No. So again, at this point, you're fearful, really. I'm very fearful that he's going to have a really big one and it's going to be broken legs, arms, whatever. It's yeah. going to be crazy. So a, a couple of things to unpack in all me this is one the last time the honda was really good on the front was when it had a bridgestone the uncrashable front end admittedly at the beginning of the michelin tenure marquez could make that bike work but remember he started to complain in the second year of michelin's i can't make anything but the hard tire work i can't make you know he started then so it makes me think that the evolution of that honda is not built to take advantage of what the michelin's give you and that's where honda's lost i think that's this transition off of the bridgestone to a michelin honda has no clear way of figuring out how to do it you know they're trying things they're not succeeding at it okay so gary did send us an email talking about this and he said look guys do you think that part of the problem with hrc is alberto puge being there i thought about this for a second really did how to think about it gary because it's, it's an interesting comment because remember the last time honda was really successful livio supo was at the helm of that now supo is a hard-nosed italian true and true right so he could kind of demand things that he wanted. He took Stoner to a world title, took Marquez to world titles, right? Everything was all well and good. But then Supo was gone. What I can't remember, maybe you can remember, Rich. It was sort of, in my mind, this is what I think, and I'm, I'm willing to admit I'm wrong because I don't know for certain, that there was sort of a coup d'etat rendered against Livio Supo by Puge because they didn't see eye to eye on like development cups and whatnot and all that but was that coup that puge orchestrated was that led by marquez to the point where like marquez didn't want to work with supo or we don't know that whole story there but there is a dynamic there that we do not understand because you take supo out of it and you can watch the results go right off a cliff 
it's a very fascinating point that Gary has made. It is. And I think you're onto something, Jim. I mean, again, we, we don't know. We weren't there. But it was kind of that era of HRC was a little bit like the sort of the Schumacher Ferrari kind of thing where it was like a, a little cabal of people that kind of ran the show and anybody that wasn't kind of the face that didn't fit soon disappeared from the scene because you had Alfa Mora, you know, Pedroza was in the team as well. So it was, and it's, it's based in Spain anyway. So that team was like absolutely Spanish. Now, having said all that, that's nothing against Spanish people, of course, but Pooch, and I haven't met the guy, don't know him, but I was listening just coincidentally about a week and a half, two weeks ago, I was listening to a great podcast interview that Toby Moody of from the race did with Chaz Davies. And Chaz was part of the, if you remember, he was back in 125 and 250 back in the two-stroke days. And so he was one of a group of riders that was under the sort of the pooch management thing. And so Chaz, in a nice way, was kind of making the point that pooch is not the most personable or easier blokes to get along with. And he is very sort of divisive, I think is would be the word. Whereas I think probably Livio Super was more of a man manager or a people person, to be more politically correct about it. David Brivido. Probably exactly like Brivio sort of galvanise the team around a central strategy, whereas I think, I suspect, and I don't know, and I'm happy to be proven wrong, but I think probably the pooch way is more factional. You're either in or you're outside. And so you can just see how this kind of breaks up this sort of single-minded purpose that you have. Add in COVID, add in, you know, the European factories coming along and starting to do stuff much more kind of out of the box, progressive, whatever you want to call it, in terms of their approach to the engineering and the aerodynamics and stuff. And it kind of, it, it all kind of becomes the perfect storm of a problem really, which has just got worse and worse and worse until we get to the point that we're at now, which is where, I mean, there's barely a man standing in the HRC camp now that can ride the bike. So is it a management problem? I mean, I think you always have to sort of blame the management to some extent. We'll, we'll get into this, as you said earlier, Jim, when we sort of do the reader's uh, comments special show. But Don, I think it was, was kind of chastising us a little bit, or somebody made the point anyway, I might be getting that wrong, but about the fact that we're sort of always carping on about Yamaha and Lynn Jarvis. And it, it is true to say that these people run the team. They don't run the engineering. That happens in Japan. So, so this is yet another problem, whereas the European factories are a little bit more kind of homogeneous in that way, that it all kind of happens in one place and it's just all a bit more directed, I think, in that way. It's more logical. So I don't know. I mean, I might just be sort of rambling and talking out of my backside because that's what I do most of the time. But clearly something has gone terribly, terribly wrong there. And just to pick up what you were saying, Jim, about the tyre thing, let's just only go back to the beginning of last season when Honda brought out this kind of new concept bike, if you remember, because, of course, mm-hmm. Marquez was absent at this point. Correct. Holder Spargo was on the bike. And in that first, in testing pre-season in 2022, and in the first, certainly in the first two to three rounds, Qatar in particular, Holder Spargo said, I've got a bike up and ride again because I can That's feel right. the rear tyre. That's correct. That seems to have disappeared again. And it, we're all back on the front again with a vague tyre that it, they cannot make a hard enough tyre for Marquez and or any of the riders now, it seems. And the, the front is just vague and unpredictable and causing people to get seriously injured at the minute. So it's, it's a horrible situation. Not one that I take any pleasure in because we really need a strong Honda up the front or at least yeah. a, a strong Honda that has a chance of winning. The, the real kick in the balls for Honda, <laughs> I mean, is the fact that Alex Rins won in Kota this year because that means they won't even get concessions. So by taking that unexpected and glorious win, he's really set them back because they don't even get the extra allowances on engines or testing or anything. So, I mean, it's yeah, Mm -hmm. it's just all gone terribly wrong, really. And it's hard to figure out how it gets put 
right in the short term. And as you say, Jim, unless some sort of an engineering miracle happens and they can produce a bike, the market suddenly thinks, oh, yeah, I can work with this and it's quick compared to the opposition by, you know, this winter. He's already talking to other people about his contract being up for expiry at that stage. And even if you get a one of these KTM teams i don't want to be mean to anyone individual someone but they could put somebody into one of those teams and just say well you've got a year and if you don't really perform there'll be people waiting in the wings and it might be at that point that marquez comes in in 2025 yep we're gonna have to talk about this in the reader special you know feedback show because this is deep this is way longer because we're never gonna get through the race if we don't cap this here yeah we could tell this is a this is a show unto itself that we could postulate about all kinds of crazy stuff but let us move back to the race so marquez decided i'm not racing he was off there we were down to what 16 bikes or something on the grid it was looking crt (laughs) (laughs) you know we don't really want to do that but that's just where we are miller got a great hole shot followed by benyaya marini martin bender and bezecchi but the ducatis all blew by miller again this goes back to what i was saying that that shape shifting works so well on hooking that frame up and getting the best out of that rear tire that they, I mean, and Miller, Grant Miller was having trouble hooking up coming out of the corners. Not as bad as Bender, but I don't care. They were even putting gaps on Bender. But for all three Ducatis to just blow past Miller was pretty flat out wild to watch. Benyai and Martin would settle in to go after each other. And Martin, about three laps in, would get by Benyai. It might have been shades of the sprint because Martin just started to keep putting the laps down put the laps down, put the laps down, and nobody was going to go catch Martin. That was pretty much it for him. Nobody was going to see him again. Ben Yaya wouldn't be threatened because he'll ride home in second. Bender was dealing with Zarco and Miller. That was a good scrap that was going on there. Bender would get by Miller. Zarco would go by Miller. Vinales's bike was smoking profusely. He got it in. He got it back into the pits. Which I thought it was odd that he crossed the track with a smoking bike uh, to get in there. But Simon Crafer was on the scene. He said, "Hey, that exhaust is from the front two cylinders of the Aprilia. There was no liquid that came out of it, so it was something very internal. They could have dropped a valve potentially, anything of that nature. Yeah. So there was nothing to worry about on track, which I thought was was good news. Vendor uh, had got himself the third, so it was looking pretty because he had dispatched Marini. So. With 10 laps in, Martin, Benyaya, Bender, Marini, Zarco, and Bezecchi. Then Zarco would go by Marini. Zarco was passing everybody at the waterfall. That's like his little place to pass. He sort of owns that part of it. Bender was then down at turn eight. He'd lost the rear in a really weird kind of crash. You know, it was turning, couldn't, the back was plowing, and away he went and down. Not hurt, but, you know, pride. Benyaya would get back past Martin, and then Zarco had gotten by everybody to be third, but Martin got back in front of Benyaya and Zarco, ahead of Zarco. And like I said, uh, Martin would win the race, followed by Benyaya. Zarco was the last man on the podium, then Bezecchi, Luca Marini, and Miller. The first five places are all Ducati. And right now, guys, if you're all mad about Ducati and it's a Ducati Cup and there's eight bikes in the grid that's got uh, Ducatis, be thankful they got riders that, um, no matter which team it is, can win on it. Because if you imagine if only Bastianini and Benyaya had the good 2023 bike, yeah, it would be really bad then, wouldn't it, folks? So be careful what you wish for, because you might get it. Well, Jim, in the top 10, there are eight Ducatis. All eight were in the top All 10. All eight are in the top 10. Only Miller and Aleish were the... Yep. And that's all European. Yep. First Japanese bike home was Morbidelli in 12th, and he beat Quattro. Beat Quattro again. 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 Yeah. Weird, isn't it? I mean, Quattro yeah. is a different story for another... Oh, yeah. Or a different discussion we'll, we'll for another day. One for the, we'll yeah. save that one. We'll save that one. Well, we've had a full mailbag this week, which has been great. Oh, yeah. So Jeez, big oh, that we it. have yeah. to oh, dedicate yeah. a show to it, but I'm really great. interested to know what people think in terms of their 
observations and so on about the Marquez and the Quattraro or the Yamaha and HRC kind of conundrum because it's yeah it really is a big conundrum at the moment and it's a sort of almost getting to the point of being an existential threat to the sport in terms of whether those companies want to continue because they've got a very very steep hill to climb to get anywhere back to competitiveness at the minute yeah i'm sorry the actual the only other european bike in the top 10 was olivera's aprilia it yeah. wasn't i thought it was a leash i had the aprilia part of it, I had so, it yeah yep crazy all eight Ducais in the top 10 and we take a gander that they'll have all eight in a row here at one point. Nah, I think the KTMs are fast enough to keep that from happening. I mean, uh, greatest respect to Fabio Di Antonio because great rider, but you know, he's beaten some big names. You know, where did he come in? I think he was eighth or ninth. So, and Mark Marquez aside, remarkably few crashes across the weekend in all three categories, actually. Just so, Mark. Yeah, Mark was <laughs> chucking it down the road, keeping the marshals busy. You know, Mark always did crash a lot, though. Yeah, you know, and you 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 kind of thought that it was like, okay, I'm searching for, oh, there is the limit. Okay, I cannot go any deeper or any faster on the front or push this any harder than X. And then he'd show up at the race and win. I was going to say the point yeah. there, I think, is that he was crashing out of first row in qualifying and or the lead in a race, whereas now yeah. he can. Oh, yeah. It's a struggle to make. Well, he makes it into Q2, but he's Barely. putting it all on the line. And then in the races, the bike just goes backwards. So, yeah, sad to see. It is. So let's, uh, I guess, let's look at the championship standings now since we've gone through all this. But Ben Yaya is still leading the championship. He's on 160 points, but there's this nemesis uh, who used to be in a KTM that is now on a Ducati, who is Jorge Martin, who is only 16 points behind Ben Yaya. Ben Yaya is going to, I don't wish this on him, but Ben Yaya's weird crash at Coda is going to come back and haunt him, I think. Yeah, it's not, this is going to be a tighter race for a championship than what we thought. Bezeki is third, and he's only 18 points behind Ben Yaya. And so you've got three Ducatis, right? Zarco with a great finish on the podium is now fourth. He's on 109. So that puts him 17 behind. So, yeah, or sorry, he's 51 behind the leader. He's only 17 behind Bezeki. So it's not out of question. Bender is there. So that's that's another European bike, the KTM. Marini, Ducati, right? Quattraro is the first non-European bike, and he's eighth, and he's going to be sinking fast because I guarantee you almost everybody else is going to go catch him and pass him because Alex Marquez is definitely quick enough on that Ducati to take points off of Quattraro. Uh, DG Antonio is probably fast enough to take points off of him and whatnot. So it's crazy that these guys are that you know, we're talking about a championship that you would have never thought wouldn't have had a Japanese bike at the top and you you or in the top 10, top two, top three, something. And it's all European. It's amazing. It is completely and utterly amazing. In a parallel universe, somewhere, Jim, I just hope there's this championship going on, which still has two Suzuki's running in it, because it would be so <laughs> fascinating to see how Suzuki oh, how good would, would they be, be doing this year. How good would they be? Yeah. I do think on the strength of how they finished last season, okay, you've got a whole winter of development that's gone on, it's true, but I still think the Suzuki's would be featuring strongly in the top 10 at most of these rounds with Brins and Mia, you know, if that team oh, yeah. was still intact and, you know, that oh, bike yeah. had moved on a bit over the winter as well, because, you know, that was head and shoulders, the best Japanese bike out there. So which came first? The announcement that they were taking the Suzuki's and destroying them or Watanabe going to HRC? Oh, golly. Uh, I don't know. Oh, I'll tell you what um, I did hear today somewhere or read somewhere, and that is that, admittedly not on a MotoGP Suzuki, but on a heavily modded Superbike Suzuki, Sylvain Gintoli is out testing the new Michelin front. Hmm. So at least there is some... Some hope. ...work going on towards resolving the 
the vexed issue of the Mitchell in front. Huh. Wouldn't this just throw a cat among the pigeons? Let's say that they give him that tire to test at the end of the season. And let's say the Honda suddenly magically becomes quick. Well, That'd be wild. if you accept the conventional wisdom that the front end is the problem on the Honda, whether it's chassis or tire, or, I mean, obviously it's a combination of all these things and aero as well, but maybe it's the silver bullet they're looking for, but I don't know. I don't think it's quite as yeah. simple as that. But Jim, the other thing that we must touch yes. on in terms of a news item that cropped up today is another contractual clause that's been triggered by the sounds of it with Martin. And that is? That he... Oh, I know. It's well, Ducati are not necessarily making a secret of the fact that there may be the option to switch Martin and Bastianini. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I don't see the point, even from Martin's point of view, because he's embedded in the Pramac team. He's on mm-hmm. the 23 factory bike, bike anyway. Factory, yep. presumably he's got a factory contract. I'm sure he must have. Why change? I mean, if yep. it's just purely the ego of having the red leathers on and the red bike, I, I find that one yourself. a bit tricky to understand, particularly given that Bastianini has been injured all year in a crash that wasn't his fault. No, it was the fault of Marini, who was on a Ducati. What I heard today on one of the podcasts was that there is a clause, because of this kind of tug of war that went on through most of last season between Martin and Bastianini, that there was a clause inserted in each contract that said there was the option for the factory to switch them around Hmm. if certain conditions occurred. But you would have thought that any manager worth his or her salt would have said, yeah, but if if there's an injury, particularly if it's an injury that's caused through no fault of the rider, then that clause can't be activated or there's some mitigation around it. Anyway, again, this presumably we'll find out what they're going to do over the summer break, but it would be pretty tough on Bastianini who I th- you'd have to say isn't back to completely 100% full fitness yet, but I think he needs to make a bit of a good showing over the course of the next three to four races. Otherwise, he might be on sticky ground there because Martin has done, as we said right at the beginning, he's doing what he needed to do, which was to stay as fast as he is and stop crashing. And, I mean, 16 points behind Banyaya, that'll be getting the attention of the, <laughs> the worst Ducati bosses, I would think, a little bit in terms of whether they need to start stage managing that one a little bit. Fully agree. Yeah. Anyway, what keeps us coming back for more, isn't it? That is true. All right. With that, I think we're done rambling on for this one. A lot of juicy stuff in this one. Yeah. Hopefully you guys enjoy this one. For me, I want you all to ride safe so we can be back here after Assen. See you next week. Cheers, everyone.